0: Have you ever been shocked by the ending of a movie? It ended like a major plot twist. Has it ever like just left you like jaw dropped, like what just happened? Like whatever I thought I knew about the movie just totally flipped on its head. The first time I remember having that feeling uh, was as a kid watching the Mission Impossible movies. Anybody ever watch those Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movies? Uh, Pretty old now, but if you remember those movies, it seemed like every one of them had the same plot twist at the end. It was like you'd be watching and tracking along with a character and things would be happening, uh, explosions, car chases, all this cool stuff. And then at this critical moment, uh, one character who you thought you knew was what was going on would just like peel off this super realistic mask and reveal that it was really Tom Cruise or someone else or whatever it was. And you're like, what just happened? I mean, this is crazy. It changes everything that you thought you knew about the movie. Well, Easter is four weeks away and leading up to uh, celebrating Jesus' death and resurrection, we're talking about studying the final days of Jesus' life. And in Matthew chapter 26, in your New Testament, the biography of Jesus' life written by Matthew, uh, Matthew 26, Matthew develops several plot lines about how Jesus' life is going to end. But there's a twist. And it may not be super dramatic. There's no masks peeling off or things like that. But it's a twist that changes the way we understand Jesus. And it also is a twist that should change the way we understand ourselves. And so we're going to study this in Matthew chapter 26. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me uh, to that passage. And if you just have a device, you can navigate on a device. That's great, too. You're always welcome uh, to use that here. And we'll have the words on the screen for you as well if you don't have any of those. But I want to read for you the first two verses of Matthew chapter 26 just to sort of set the stage. So Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 and 2 says, When Jesus had finished saying all these things... He told his disciples, You know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now, this was shocking for the disciples to hear, although it shouldn't have been, because up to this point in Matthew's gospel alone, Jesus had explicitly predicted his death and resurrection three times already. This is the fourth time that Jesus gives detailed prediction about his death in Matthew's gospel. But the disciples just either couldn't comprehend what was gonna happen or they just flat out rejected the premise that Jesus would have to die at all. And while this is all happening in the disciples' minds, there are other people who are actually trying to make Jesus's death happen. There are people conspiring against him. And the first plot, that Matthew begins to develop in this chapter is the religious leaders plot to take Jesus's life. So look with me at the next verse in verse three. Jesus now has predicted his death. Uh, He's been talking by the way for the last few chapters about the end of time and judgment and how his death is actually gonna be a critical moment in making the next phase of life happen for the world, right? So but now in verse three, After Jesus has made this prediction, it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. Isn't that interesting? Now, this plot was sinister for sure. But it wasn't rash. Let me explain this. It sounds like these guys just show up after three years of Jesus' ministry and they're like, just kill this guy. Get him out of the way. But in reality, every Jewish leader from every facet of Judaism was attempting to kill Jesus. And this had been happening as an undercurrent to Jesus's ministry since the beginning. The Gospel of Mark and Mark's biography of Jesus from the very outset of Jesus's ministry describes the Pharisees and the scribes, these other facets of Jewish leadership, conspiring together. Though they didn't typically agree on anything else, they agreed on the fact that they thought Jesus needed to die. And so this current was developing for almost three years among Jewish leaders. And now that we read Caiaphas, the high priest, is involved and the elders of the People are involved, and the other chief, chief priests are involved. You add that to the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and you've got everybody in Judaism who typically agrees on nothing, agreeing on one central point that Jesus must die along with his influence. Now, this is a critical moment, and this plot begins to develop. But the hardest part of their plan, as we read in verse 5, wasn't actually the murder. Or the conviction. It was actually the public relations side of things. It was image management. This is the point where Jewish leaders had gotten, where they cared more about what people thought of them than they cared about doing what they thought was right. In fact, that often led them to do things that were not right or in the wrong way. And I think this is so interesting because it's hard for us to identify with these Jewish leaders. I mean, they're very religious people and just we don't really have a a good, uh, you know, parallel in our world today. People just aren't quite as religious as these religious people were. You probably don't feel like you're a super religious person. And that even though we have a kind of a religious foundation in East Texas, uh, we're just not super religious people in the way these people were. So, you know, these people are very religious, but we tend to scoff at them. Uh, You know, almost like we're making fun of them because we're going Hey, we have the whole story here, and what we see in the life of Jesus is Jesus fulfilling all of these Old Testament scriptures and prophecies. We talked about last week how over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in great detail. These are scriptures that these men would have had memorized. And so we kind of scoff at them and we go, how could they be so blind? How could these guys miss What was really happening right in front of their eyes? How could they be against Jesus? Didn't they know the prophecies that we rely on to show us that Jesus is actually God? How could they be so blind? And we scoff at them. But I wonder are they so different from us? Because if the main thing wasn't just them arresting and killing Jesus, but really their main concern was what do people think about them, I wonder how many of us have made choices that go against Jesus because of fear of what people will think about us. How many of us have made that kind of choice? A decision that goes against Jesus because of fear of what people will think about us. You see, a treacherous plot to kill Jesus probably isn't in your character. I would hope it's not in mine, right? And we would probably go, well, these people are so different from us, but people-pleasing at the expense of Jesus Probably hit a little closer to home, doesn't it? This tends to be more a part of our story. Maybe we aren't too different from these religious leaders after all. Maybe that propensity is in us as well. Well, this plot's developing. That pressure is increasing against Jesus from the outside. But then there's another plot that Matthew develops in this chapter. A plot that develops from the inside. From Jesus' inner circle. So skip down to verse 14 with me, and we'll read this story together. Verse 14, it says, Then one of the twelve, right, an insider, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him and from that time he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him all right so the plot thickens well let's see how this plays out uh, verse 17 says on the first day of unleavened bread the disciples came to jesus and asked where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the passover now, this was an annual celebration a festival right that they were going to celebrate uh, go into the city to a certain man he said and tell him the teacher says my time is near Okay, so Jesus, again, recognizing the road to the cross. My time is near. I'm celebrating the Passover at your place with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, he was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Now, this is not like the good dinner time conversation you would expect at a celebration, but Jesus is aware of this developing plot uh, for his betrayal. And it says, He uh, deeply distressed, describing the disciples, each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And Jesus replied, the one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The son of man will go just as is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Judas, his betrayer, replied, Surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it, he told him. Wow, you can kind of read between the lines of the tension in the room at that moment. But this passage, verses 14 through 25, is the developing plot. It's Judas's plot. To betray Jesus' life. So we started with a plot to take Jesus' life. Now we've got this sort of conjoining plot for Judas to betray Jesus' life. And if we read this like we're watching a movie, now's the point where you think you got it all figured out. Like, you know what's about to happen. You, you know the storyline. You know the plot. Right? Of course, right? It's not an outside job. It's an inside job, right? There's a mole in the camp. This is how it all plays out. But the truth revealed here goes so much deeper than just like a good guy, bad guy story, right? Think about Judas. Remember who this man is. This is a person who has traveled with Jesus now for three years nearly, that he's been there experiencing firsthand the incredible miracles, world-changing miracles that Jesus performed. I think about when Jesus fed the 5,000, Judas was one of the disciples who held a basket and walked through crowds and throngs of people handing out a never-ending supply of bread and fish. A miracle, right? He's one of the 12 who, as that story describes, takes a full basket of leftovers home. So even for days After the miracle, he continues to feast on the work Jesus had done in his presence. I mean, this is a guy who had spent days, years walking with Jesus, looking at him face to face, listening to his teaching. Yet, when Judas compared the cost of selling out for Jesus to the instant gratification of selling Jesus out, he took the quick payout. I mean, estimates of what 30 pieces of silver, by the way, would be worth today are all over the map. But the fact is widely agreed upon that no bounty was worth the betrayal. I mean, it could have been a million dollars. It could have been $10 million, and it still would not have been worth it because Judas didn't get away scot-free, right? There was no, like, jet setting off on a, on a plane to a private island where he's, like, wearing sunglasses and sipping a cold drink and, you know, laughing. No, that's not the story. I mean, it could have been $10 or $10 million. It wouldn't have mattered because he betrayed the Savior. And his life tragically ended. We're going to talk more about that in the next couple weeks on, in this series, The Road to the Cross. But once again, you and I might be quick to put Judas in a totally different category than ourselves. Uh, you know, we might assume that we're much, much different than a man like this who would betray Jesus. I mean, come on. Doesn't that just sound so far out of character for us? I mean, uh, our culture respects Jesus. I mean, my family has loved Jesus for generations. How would I be the one? Surely not me, right? Except look closer at verse 22. Every single disciple is described as deeply distressed. And then each disciple says to Jesus, surely not I, Lord. Is it me? Am I going to be the one to betray you? And this is a question we have to ask. And I think if we were brutally honest with ourselves about what's hidden in the dark corners of our souls, about what's most true about us outside of Christ, we would see that we have the propensity also to betray Jesus to take the quick payout of what our sinful world can offer rather than paying the high cost of discipleship to Jesus. I mean, how often have we done this? Like When we choose convenience over commitment to Jesus, we betray him. When we choose you know, personal safety over the potential suffering for Jesus, we betray him. When we choose silence in the face of evil rather than standing up for what's right, we betray him. And we could go on and on and on. We too, as disciples of Jesus, are not all that different from Judas. Surely not I. So where do we go from here? Well, Judas joins forces with these religious leaders And sandwiched between these two plots that are developing is a complete juxtaposition to the story that is unfolding in Matthew 26. Go back and look with me at verse 6, where Matthew introduces a woman who makes an unthinkable gesture toward Jesus. Now, let me just pause before we read it and just make a note that this is a woman. Now, in this story, we've got these chief priests, elders, even the high priests. These are all men. We've got Judas, who's a man. We've got the 12 disciples, who's a man. And then we've got, in complete opposition and contrast to these men, we've got a woman who makes an incredible gesture toward Jesus. So read it with me, starting in verse 6 of chapter 26 of Matthew. It says, While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approached him, "...with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This might have been sold for a great deal, given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, "'Why are you bothering this woman?' She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Again, Jesus tripling down now on the fact that his life is going to end. Verse 12, by pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So while Judas and the leaders are conspiring against Jesus, this woman is counteracting their hostility with an extreme form of hospitality. She's she's counteracting their attempt at assassination with her own attempt at at, 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 a, at um, you know anointing, like blessing Jesus, at, at honoring Jesus. While others want to kill him, she wants to lift him up. Now, this could seem like a strange story to slip right here in Matthew 26, to interject right between these developing plots that now are conjoining to take and betray Jesus's life. But what Matthew's giving us here through this woman is an example of the right way to relate to Jesus in light of his death the right way to relate to Jesus in light of his death. And so Jesus says in verse 12 that she's prepared his body for burial. It seems like she's aware of something deeper than maybe the others were. Like the 12 disciples tended to reject and, and even misunderstood Jesus's predictions about his death while this woman seemed to take it to heart. And then guess what? It changed the way she lived. What was valuable to her now gained a more valuable use. What seemed to be the most expensive thing she owned, she gave it as an offering to Jesus. Which, by the way, this offering was estimated to be about three times more expensive than the 30 pieces of silver that Judas was offered for Jesus. So the disciples called it a waste of money. They were furious. They were upset. What a waste, right? Yet Jesus honored her sacrifice because she rightly understood his. And so right in the middle of these developing plots to take and betray Jesus's life, we get this example in this woman of the right way to relate to Jesus. In light of his death, and in that moment, this woman was a truer picture of discipleship to Jesus than even his twelve disciples. I mean, you've got the religious people; they're concerned about power and and people pleasing. You've got Judas, who's concerned about a payout. You've got the disciples who are just penny pinching, right? But then you've got this woman who rightly prioritizes Jesus in her life. I wonder, we found ourselves in the story of the religious leaders, even though we probably didn't expect it. We found ourselves in the story of Judas, even though you might not have even wanted to. But can we relate to this woman as a true disciple of Jesus? I wonder, what are you willing to waste on Jesus? I wonder, does Jesus get your best? I wonder, is Jesus the most valuable thing you have? Because what Matthew's revealing here in this woman's story is that the true path to fulfillment is not in what you can get, but instead the true path to fulfillment is in what you can give in the name of Jesus. This is the truth Matthew's revealing. And while the powers that be were conspiring against Jesus, this woman poured out what was worth the most to her and then the passover meal continues and jesus <coughs> flips the script on his death this is where the plot twists revealing god's plot to give jesus his life this is the <gasps> moment in the story of matthew 26 Some tried to take his life. Judas tried to betray his life. But God says, oh, no, 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 no. My story is so much bigger. I want to give Jesus his life. Look with me at verse 26 in chapter 26, where it says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. And then he took a cup And after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So I want you to see here in this short passage at the end is that while this woman poured out her expensive perfume, Jesus' plan was to pour out himself, his own blood for the many, for the forgiveness of sin. You may recall the book of Hebrews in the New Testament who Hebrews does an incredible job about linking Old Testament and new and showing us how sort of everything works together. Well, one of these eternal truths presented in Hebrews chapter nine is that there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And so then you look back at the Old Testament covenant with God where the Israelites had to go to the temple and they had to make these animal sacrifices in order to be redeemed and restored to God. And that was the shedding of blood. But the new covenant is now being established through Jesus, God himself in His form of his son given to the world so that he could become the sacrifice once and for all so that all could come to him through faith and be forgiven of their sins. Jesus' blood poured out on the cross is the way for sin to be forgiven and relationship to God to be restored. This is the new way of life, a new way to relate to God that Jesus inaugurates. Some in Jesus' day, and even today, some maybe even around the Passover table, might have said to Jesus, What a waste. Remember what the disciples said to the woman who poured out her perfume? Some might say that about Jesus. What a waste. Jesus could have done so much more good in the world. I mean, could he just stay around another month, maybe another year, maybe a couple years? What what if Jesus just lived here forever and didn't have to die? What if he just lived here and did all kinds of good in the world and helped everybody and healed people? Wouldn't that be so much better? And God says, no, my plan is bigger than that, right? What a waste, right? Some might've said, as we looked at last week, that, oh, Jesus could just snap his fingers and collapse the Roman empire. Isn't that what the people wanted, right? The Messiah who would rescue them from the Romans. But God said, no, my plan is so much bigger, right? I mean, couldn't Jesus just wave his hand and say enough with all the religious injustices and punish the people in leadership who had made abuses of the Jewish religion? Sure, he could have done all of that, but that was not why he came. This is the twist, that while Jesus had the authority to execute the wrath of God toward the sin of the world. His mission was to be executed by the wrath of God for the sin of the world. This is the plot twist. Nobody could take his life. Nobody could truly betray him because God had already decided to give Jesus his life. This was his plan all along. In fact, in the Gospel of John, John writes another biography about Jesus in our New Testament. And in chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, the words of Jesus is he says, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own. See, why would Jesus be willing to have his life sacrificed for others? Well, number one is because of love. I mean, that's the story of the New Testament. God so loved the world, John chapter three, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not have eternal death, but would have eternal life in him. I mean, this is the story of God and his love for us, but also there's something else here that I wanna point out to you. It's that Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for others, yes, out of his love, but also because he understood death is not the end of our story. I mean, don't miss the first thing he says in John 10, 17, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Which of us could say that? I mean, without Jesus, we have no hope for life after death. But Jesus says death is not the end of our story and he's willing to give his life as a sacrifice because of this eternal truth. And so Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, after the part that we usually focus on because of the Lord's Supper where he does the body and the blood stuff, verse 29, he says something so interesting. Look at it with me. He says, but I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is assuring his disciples of this reality. That yeah, he may not be there to celebrate Passover with them next year or the year after that or maybe even the year after that or maybe for 2,000 plus years but there will be a day when they celebrate together again in God's kingdom. And the language he's using here is language that points to life after death in a way that we don't often think about it. He says, in my father's kingdom, and what he's talking about is God's overarching plan that started with creation, that was tainted and twisted by sin, That God knew, and so He planned for a redeemer and a rescuer in Jesus. The climax of the story was Jesus giving His life for the forgiveness of sin, so that by faith anyone who believes in Him could have salvation and be restored to God and have eternal life. But ultimately, Jesus would return at the end of time, and God would judge all sin, He would punish all evil, but then He also is going to establish His kingdom forever, and Jesus is going to reign on the throne throne of God's kingdom forever and he's going to remake the earth. Creation is going to be restored to its original intent. This is the story of the Bible from beginning to end. So when we hear Christians talking about we're going to go to heaven when we die, and I just tell you we're not going to be sitting up on clouds playing harps. That is not a biblical picture of heaven. The picture of heaven in the Bible is that we will reign with Jesus as he reigns over all of God's kingdom. That we will live life to the full on a recreated brand new without sin without even the residual consequences of sin earth that we're going to have enjoyment of all of the things that are good and beautiful and perfect that God made and God intended with him and so yes I think that includes what Jesus says to the disciples here I will drink it with you again in my father's kingdom that the kingdom of God for eternity, what's after this life, even includes eating and drinking. It's as simple as that. So some tried to take his life. Judas betrayed him, but God says, no, my plan is so much bigger. In fact, it's so big, I'm willing to give my own son's life so that people can be restored to me through forgiveness of sin so that he can establish his kingdom." For eternity. I wonder if Jesus had in mind Isaiah the prophet when he spoke these words to the disciples. 700 years before Jesus, this is what Isaiah prophesies about the end of all things and the recreation of the earth and life with God for eternity. It says in Isaiah 25, verse six through 10, on this mountain, talking about Mount Zion, which is like this picture of eternity, In Old Testament literature, he says, On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. You get this picture of a banquet, a celebration. It's the Passover on steroids we enjoy everything God has made with him. It says, On this mountain, he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. And you might go, I don't know what all that means. Well, here's what it means. In the next phrase, it says, He will destroy death Forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. Sin and death and all of its consequences will be wiped away. The Lord has spoken. And on that day it will be said, look, this is our God. We've waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation for the Lord's power. Will rest on this mountain. So who wins in eternity? Is it the ones who hung Jesus on a cross, who conspired against him to take his life? No. Was it Judas who betrayed him? Who got that 30 pieces of silver but didn't quite amount to as much as he thought it would? No, that he doesn't win. God wins the one who chose to give his son as a sacrifice for many is the one who provides salvation and who reigns for all of eternity as his kingdom is established. The question that we have to answer today is what will our story be in relationship to God? A lot of people are living a boring story at best, a tragic story at worst. But God wants to flip the script on your life. Plot twist. Where he rescues you from sin through forgiveness. Where he establishes you in his kingdom for all eternity. That you can enjoy life with him now and forevermore. No matter what comes in this life, you have hope and peace and joy And satisfaction and fulfillment, nothing else the world can offer can provide these things. Only Jesus can provide for hope in life and victory in death. And Jesus' way is the only way to experience this, where we pour out ourselves for him in the same way he poured out himself for us. So forgiveness new life, eternity with God, enjoying new creation, the way things should have been from the beginning, it's available to you today. And the Bible says that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That word means rescued. And it comes along with it, the image of being forgiven from your sin and restored to God in a relationship forever. Do you need to be rescued from sin today? Do you need to be saved from sin, forgiven? Do you need to start a new life, a life eternal with God today? That is the story that God wants to write in your life. You just have to let him. You gotta respond to him. You gotta put your faith and trust in him that Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty for your sin and you'll be saved. Would you pray with me? God, I'm in awe of your story, and every time I even think about, from beginning to end, the story that you're writing, it's so much bigger than I can even imagine, and it's so much better than I can imagine, and my prayer today is that the story you're writing would just be new in our hearts, that we would renew our joy in the salvation you've provided for us through Jesus Christ. I also pray today, God, that someone who needs to respond to Jesus in faith to begin a life-changing and ever-growing relationship with you would take that step today. God, would you begin to work in our hearts and stir us up to be people who would pour ourselves out just like you did for us in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.